Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. There's another world that awaits far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Paranormal. It's somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. And you're not going to see the para-abnormal if you are not looking up. Are you looking up, friends? Good evening from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I am Jeremy Scott. Off the UFO Fest high from last Friday uh, when we went to UFO Fest and uh, had an out-of-this-world time. I have to thank everybody who came out and saw the program live, those who were fans of the program and those who were fans of UFO Fest who are now fans of this program. We've uh, we've converted a few people over to this side. And uh, actually, affiliate by affiliate, we're doing the same as we move across the USA with uh, brand new channels joining us each and every night carrying this show far and wide. But as I was there at UFO Fest and was just kind of taking a few moments to reflect on the proceedings before I left town uh, in McMinnville. I was there on the rooftop bar, so high above Hotel Oregon there at McMinniman's in downtown McMinnville, and uh, I was doing exactly that, looking up. And as I sat there and looked up, I... I wondered, you know, everything that you're probably thinking. What could possibly be out there? Are we alone? What are those craft that are visiting? What are those anomalies? Those blips? Those plasma balls or orbs that are appearing when we talk about odd 
uh, occurrences, it's not always an object. Sometimes it can be uh, like exactly what I just mentioned or feel as if, uh, you know, maybe there's uh, an incredible amount of exhaust around an object uh, indicating, you know, perhaps how it might be powered. But out there among those UFOs, there are many other objects, celestial objects, uh, stars in the sky, interstellar objects, perhaps. And in fact, in the news tonight, we are going to have a report on the possibility that there are more interstellar objects out there than we might know about. Uh, of course, Oumuamua in, and Borisov would probably be the two most known, for certainly the first two of their kind known interstellar objects. Oumuamua, which slid through in 2017, and then Borisov, which came through in 2019. Lightning quick, uh, as far as that's concerned, way too quickly for any sort of uh, healthy observation. And really, there's no possibility that these objects are going to come around ever again in which for us to observe. But there may be many others out there, and I don't know that we have a number to say how many of these objects could be out there, but researchers do believe that there may be a steady population, their words, of interstellar objects that are in near-Earth orbit. However, they find that much like Oumuamua and Borisov, that these objects do not stay very long. More on that coming up second hour, in fact, of the program tonight with George Henry on Parabnormal News. But uh, if you're if you are outside. I mean, this is the time of year as we head in from uh, Memorial Day this weekend all the way through Labor Day. So through the summer months, the warmer time of the year uh, in most places. Around the world. More people are outside looking up. They're having star parties and CE5 contact gatherings under the stars trying to summon craft, calling for extraterrestrial contact. People just out with telescopes looking at all sorts of celestial objects out there. And doing so, scanning the skies has been a pastime of sky watchers for centuries. I mean, we we have all, I think, at one point sat there and just looked at the stars and have found ourselves almost, at least that's how I have perceived it, almost in awe of my surroundings, just wondering, gosh, you know, we're just a little speck in that and that's all we are is a speck. I mean, in the overall thing, uh, you know, scheme of things, I mean, we're a very tiny part 
of where we call home. We're a very tiny part of where we go to work. We're a very tiny part when we get on a plane or we're in a public gathering. We're just a speck, just a speck in the overall scheme of things. And all of those objects that are out there, I mean, we have been, and by we I mean mankind, for tens and hundreds of years, we have been outside under the stars looking at these objects. Stars, celestial bodies, and uh, there are many places uh, across the internet now that if you don't have a telescope, you don't have a camera, you can view a lot of this stuff online. Uh, And, of course, in a lot of places around the country and around the world, you can actually see some of this really cool stuff happen. But you've got to go outside and you've got to look up. For instance, the Moon and Venus and Mars are coming together in the western sky, with the Moon actually sitting between those two planets, probably actually as we speak. So during the break, while we have a few minutes, if you step outside and look to the west, it is very possible that you could see moon, the moon in the middle of Venus and Mars. There's also going to be the waxing moon's trip past bright evening planets. That is going to create a sky show. Two shadows in the great red spot on Jupiter visible on Thursday. And then it's the first quarter moon coming up this weekend for Memorial Day. Followed by double shadows crossing over Jupiter. On Monday, Memorial Day itself, right before sunrise, Mercury will be seen at greatest western elongation. On Tuesday, two shadows will lead the great red spot across Jupiter. And to round out the month, Mars will be approaching the beehive. These are all celestial events that are happening out there. And so take a, you know, a few moments to head outside and to look up. Because unless you do it, you don't know what it is that you're actually going to see. Also, there is a supernova that astronomers have been looking at for the past few days, in fact, putting their telescopes towards a familiar celestial object in our spring night sky for a look at a rare event, a new supernova, which is a star that has literally and figuratively burst upon the scene, known as the Pinwheel Galaxy or M101, very, very uh, fascinating uh, to look at that. Uh, That's, of course, where it uh, originates. And there's even talks that we could put some additional telescopes up on the moon, which could transform 
astronomy even further. Of course, there are many of these telescopes that are ground-based, uh, but putting one up on the moon uh, is is a very, very interesting thought because uh, it could bring us actually really a lot of spectacular views. Uh, and these could be views of of anything, uh, anything basically in the sky. And I know that there are some additional uh, projects that are out there that are, yes, they are looking for UFOs, but they're also going to capture the non-UFOs. Perhaps, uh, you know, the Northern Lights, Aurora Borealis, and other events that happen. And uh, who knows what AI is going to do uh, for astronomy, uh, because it has already made some pretty significant discoveries, captured some amazing, amazing pictures. And tonight we're going to uh, wonder whether whether or not these images paint a picture. They certainly paint a visual image in our mind, but collectively, do these images, do they mean something? If you have a thought on this, or you have your telescope out tonight, or you've seen anything weird in the sky of late, I would love to hear from you. It's 503-506-0396. Maybe you're seeing uh, those planets grouped together tonight, and you've got eyes on. 503-506-0396 in North America or Canada. You can click the Skype button right from parabnormalradio.com if you'd like to do it that way as well. But as I stated, if you you don't have your eyes to the sky, the name of our program tonight, well, chances are you are not going to uh, see any of this. And there's a lot to be seen out there. In fact, we'll tell you about our guest who's going to be joining us tonight on the program who has spent uh, a lot of time actually doing just what I've suggested. Look up. It's a wonderful world that we live in, and I'm honored that we can discuss it tonight with you somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott across the USA. Stick with us because this program will continue right after this. Into the paranormal. Into the paranormal, somewhere between abnormal and paranormal, I am Jeremy Scott. Mark D'Antonio is coming up on the program. We'll tell you about him in just a moment. But you can't reach out and touch the stars. Yet we know that they're there. We see them nightly. We, We can't touch the sun, and yet it rises and then sets every day. And so to believe that there are not other objects out there, perhaps interstellar objects that originate outside our solar system, 
is not too far-fetched. And then, of course, that brings into, well, if, they, if they're not from our galaxy, how did they get here? Were they a result of some sort of uh, collision? Were they sent here? Are these probes? Are they from a mothership? You know, I was on with Frank Murano on WABC in New York the other night, talking to a massive audience overnight on the radio in New York City, and he brought up, uh, actually reminded me, a little bit about what uh, Sean Kirkpatrick had said before the UFO hearing. In fact, tonight on the program, a story of some crazy UFO sightings that have happened over some airports. This is, um, yeah, this is developing. Within the past couple of days, there have been reports of UFOs over airports that have brought things to a halt. So that's coming up as well in Paranormal News. We've just got all sorts of great stuff for you tonight. But prior to the hearing last month, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, head of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, along with Professor Avi Loeb, who was the... uh, uh, astronomer that we talked with after the discovery of Oumuamua in 2017, he believes that that was an alien probe. Of course, as I mentioned, these objects too quick to be captured, so we'll never know. And since then, there have been many theories on what it is and what it is not. Sean Kirkpatrick saying... That there, these alien probes actually not only could exist, as Avi Loeb suspected with Oumuamua, but that they may exist from a mothership. A mothership that has been sent to observe us down on Earth. And so that, uh, of course, is another thing that is possible for one to spot. And people are spotting weird things in the sky. Uh, Seemingly every week or every other week, we hear about a pretty credible sighting report of uh, lights and objects that are seen uh, by many people. And uh, it is certainly not the first time that we've heard about these reports of uh, UFOs over airports. In fact, not in the least. If you know your UFO history, it's actually happened before. So that report from George Henry is coming up. And then we'll be joined by Mark D'Antonio, who is a photo analyst and a special effects expert, among many other things. He's an astronomer. He looks at the skies, and he's going to analyze some of this phenomena for us. I'm Jeremy Scott, into the Parabnormal. We'll be back.
This is Paranormal News. UFOs over two airports have caused temporary shutdowns in both Turkey and Taiwan over the past few days. A pilot of a passenger plane arriving at Gaziantep Airport early Saturday morning notified air traffic controllers of an unidentified flying object on radar at an altitude of about 9,000 feet. The airport shut down for 12 hours and dozens of flights were canceled while authorities investigated. Then on Monday morning at Taiwan International Airport, a commercial pilot reported a UFO at only a 1,000 feet. The airport was shut down over a half an hour. Officials have been unable to identify either of the objects. There have been many UFO sightings at airports over the years, including at Chicago's O'Hare in 2006 and a series in China in 2010, not to mention the countless pilots who have seen them in the air. George Henry, Paranormal News. travel through space, you never know where you'll land. We can guarantee it will be into the paranormal. Astrologically speaking, it would have to be a mesmerizing trip if we were to head there about now with a supernova amongst us. And, uh, you know, there seemed to be always something going on in our skies. Some of it is just ordinary, I will admit, but there is a lot that is strange out there. I mentioned the supernova, and here we are kind of in prime viewing uh, time over the next day or so. Uh, SN 2023 IXF, one of the largest and brightest supernovas that has been seen over the past decade, is here. And I thought, uh, who best to have on to talk about this than Mark D'Antonio, who is a notable astronomer, director of Sky Tour Livestream Observatories, CEO of FX Models, which is a model-making and special effects company specializing in digital and physical models and organic special effects in the film industry, along with being the chief photo and video analyst for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Mark D'Antonio, it's been too long. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you. Absolutely. So I mentioned the supernova. You're more of an expert on this than I am. But for those who are not familiar, uh, tell us what is a supernova and then how can we see the one currently? Well, supernovas, you know, like our star, uh, the sun, you know, isn't going to last forever. At some point, it's going to run out of its nuclear fuel that powers it. And that's the hydrogen gas in its core uh, that it uh, fuses into helium. Right, that's the basis of fusion in all stars, at least when they start. And for more massive stars, they tend to run through their hydrogen very quickly. And so maybe, whereas our star is going to go 10 billion years, and it's only halfway into its life, so don't get panicky. <laughs> 
uh, more massive stars can you know, literally eat all their hydrogen and convert it all to helium in just a few million years. And then they start fusing helium into other things, and they basically build the elements in our periodic table. Well, there comes a point where the star can no longer fuse anything because it doesn't have anything left to fuse. When that happens, it loses the battle. And what I mean by that is the star is pushing outward with radiation at exactly the same amount that the star is trying to collapse from its own gravitational contraction, its own gravitational force trying to collapse it. And that's an, a balance that's reached automatically. Just like when you go in a lake, you can float just by laying on your back. You're in equilibrium. You're in a balance. Well, if you're too heavy, you'll sink. If you're too light, you'll float out of it. Well, we're not. We're just balanced. Well, a star is in balance, too, and with the amount of outward pressure to the gravitational force trying to crush it on itself. And when it runs out of that hydrogen fuel and the other fuels that it has been uh, fusing, it can collapse. And that's actually what happened here. Uh, we see this several times a year with some very massive stars out there. This star was pretty massive. And uh, in our remote observatories, we've been viewing it over the last three days publicly. And, you know, thousands of people have been able to see it over the last few days because we're showing them in this distant galaxy over 20 million light years away. We're showing them this, this uh, star that has literally blown up because that, that star lost the battle with, uh, with gravity. And the core collapses inside and rebounds off the center and sprays outward. Meanwhile, the rest of the star, which is massive, is still coming in. Because, you know, the message doesn't get to the outer layers of the star for hours. So the outward flow of this uh, star that's in the process of blowing up rips into the material that's now falling inward. And you end up getting this incredible uh, star being ripped apart. Uh, and uh, we call it a stellar disruption, if you want to know real terms. But the, the thing is, I just say it blows up. Uh, and this star blew up. And it's actually brighter right now than the entire galaxy it's in. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that's actually what happens with, with these particular types of supernovae. All right? They will often be brighter than the galaxy they're in. And it may be brighter for a period of weeks to months, depending on uh, its original mass and you know what's going on in there. And it's just incredible to watch a supernova kind of happening in action. So uh, we trained our telescope on it. And if someone wants to see it, they have to use a telescope. It's not going to be visible in the night sky. Um, and so a telescope trained on it, like we do with our SkyTour live stream telescopes, um, will show this very clearly. And uh, we've got a telescope that runs literally 25 times faster uh, than a telescope of its, uh, a normal telescope of its type. And uh, that means that we can show people things in seconds, not the minutes or hours that it might take to capture images. And we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images over the last few years. And we make them all available to people for free. You know, they just have to go to skytourlive.com or skytourlive.org. And they can go look at all the photos we've taken and download them. You know, and there are some supernovas in there as well. That's one of the places that I was mentioning as far as even if you don't have any of this fancy equipment, plenty of places, including Sky Tour Live, where you can see these. So give us an idea about 
how sensitive uh, the equipment has to be to pick up uh, these on uh, in images? Oh, but it's it's a a matter of having a camera that has a very very sensitive sensor. We're using a dedicated camera in all of our observatories, and uh, of a particular kind. And this particular camera can take the information coming into it and build it up uh, over a few seconds and compound it and really, really makes the image look tremendously uh, brighter than it would be. Things that are literally a billion times fainter than your eye can see, this can see within seconds. Right, So that gives you an idea of how powerful the camera is. Now, the telescope, it has to have aperture. It has to be a certain diameter okay, uh, to capture a lot of light at once. So we have a nice blend of aperture and versus camera. And, um, you know, I run it from 2,500 miles away from it. I'm, I'm in Connecticut, and it's in Arizona, out in the desert. And uh, what's interesting is uh, the sensitivity of that camera is enough that we can pick up some incredible details in such a short amount of time. And it literally opens up the universe and basically the sky above. And that led to me thinking of the, uh, the name uh, Sky Tour Livestream because it's a sky tour that we're bringing people on and it's a live stream. We're showing it to you uh, live. And so the uh, subtext to that is that, you know, Sky Tour Livestream brings you the universe live in real time. And uh, there's almost no limits to what we can show. It's just limited by the amount of aperture we have, the diameter of our telescope. And we uh, are right now working on a third site. We have uh, two now. The first one in Connecticut, where I am, is actually uh, in rehab, 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 because we have to rebuild a building because we outgrew the actual dome we had. So we we sold it and we got a, a building to build, but COVID caused the wood prices to go through the roof. So they're still coming down, but we're going to build uh, another one here for that. And then we have a third one going in out in Arizona, in another part of Arizona, and it's going to be a special telescope that works in tandem <clears throat> with the one we have out there now. The one we have out there now is wide angle. It shows four full moons of, of sky across and three full moons of sky tall. So that's the big field. That's two degrees by one and a half degrees of sky. And what we're doing actually is we get beautiful pictures of these expansive nebulae, Jeremy, that are just, you know, these are the birthplaces of life, these nebulae. And I like being able to show people where we came from. And that's what these, that's what that telescope's good at. Now, if we want to dig in, and see what's in the center of that nebula, or what does that particular uh, exploded star look like up close? That's the job of the third telescope. And uh, that one, uh, we're in the process of formulating a plan. I've already designed a new building for that. And uh, this one is going to show people uh, close-ups of all the things that the other telescope shows wide angle, and they'll be side by side. So you'll see a wide angle shot of this nebula, and then a close-up of a very interesting feature in the nebula right in the other view. So we're going to actually have a, uh, a very, very uh, interesting uh, uh, set of observatories that all work together. So I, it's a pretty interesting uh, situation. And I want to thank, you know, uh, SkyTour Livestream is a, a, a non-profit company we started. And, 
you know, it has Tara Dayulis, who's an artist in, in Arizona, and Marianne Robb. Uh, Tara is our secretary. Marianne is our treasurer. I'm the president. And uh, together, we believe that uh, science belongs to everyone, and everyone should be able to uh, understand it. So from my perspective as an astronomer, I chose to make this a organization where we teach you astronomy, whether you know you're being taught or not. And it's fun. You just have to go and watch our streams. We have hundreds and hundreds of streams up on YouTube right now. And we just started on Rumble. And, you know, we're getting thousands of views overall on um, our, our uh, videos and our, our live streams. And people come in from all over the world, you know. Uh, people come and say, hey, I'm here from Chile. Hey, I'm here from Bulgaria. Hello from Mexico. I mean, hi from China, literally. Um, and so um, people are fascinated with this stuff all around the world. They are. They are. You know, it makes sense, too, right? Because, you know, when you look up, you're usually in an area where there's light pollution. And you don't know what it's like to look up in the sky and not see light pollution. No one does uh, unless you come and look at one of our sites you know we've chosen some very very dark sky and uh it's just beautiful uh it's almost it, it almost makes you cry it's so dark you look up for the first time it literally takes your breath away you know it's almost as if there's no atmosphere over your head and you're just it's you the earth and space uh it's absolutely stunning and when I saw that for the first time in 2014, I believe, 2014 is when I first saw it, I think, I decided then I'm going to go through whatever I have to to have an observatory out in the desert. Boy, would I like that. So I started a GoFundMe, uh, and this was in like 2018, I think. I started a GoFundMe uh, for the purpose of developing an educational platform in the desert. It was wildly successful, and it gave us enough money to buy the telescope, all the gear, and build the building. So I was very impressed with that, you know. And I, and you know, and I'm not going to do it again. I'm just saying that that's that's uh, what we did. And now we have a Patreon. People can come in. They can donate to us if they want. You know, we we go to shows. We show people what's happening. Um, and I think it's a lot of fun that when people can learn something and actually enjoy it. Remember the dry science classes you had yeah. in school? It's like, oh, I don't know if the I want to hear this stuff. guy talk. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a textbook too, but I'm also a textbook that's fun. <laughs> I have great pictures in my textbook, so to speak. <laughs> so, and so, Mark, you plan to have three of these uh, telescopes in operation across the country, if I'm hearing you correct? You are, and we're looking for a fourth one down below the equator because I've never seen the southern sky, and neither has anyone else that's up here. So it'd be great to uh, be able to show them southern sky, too. We're not there yet. That's that's a ways off. But, uh, yes, we have one in operation now. Uh, it's west of Phoenix by, gosh, 70 miles out in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. And further west, it, it's uh, there's another location that we have actually been invited to to uh, set up a telescope on in a permit building. So we're going to do that, uh, I think. And then um, there's another place we've been invited to go in a different location in Arizona. Exciting times. We'll continue with Mark D'Antonio of uh, Sky Tour Live Observatories right after this.
Do you have your eyes to the sky tonight? All right, back to Mark D'Antonio, who was telling us about uh, putting up these observatories uh, here in the U.S., but also uh, down in, uh, you said, uh, below the equator, uh, equator, Mark? Well, uh, that's a goal down, you know, eventually, yeah. I mean, everybody wants to see the southern clouds, the Magellanic clouds, and, and, and you know, Crux, the constellation, and, you know, Southern Cross. And there's so much to see down there and so much to see up here. Uh, so it would be great to be able to cover the whole sky. Absolutely. And, and in doing so, uh, what is it that you really hope to capture one day? I want to capture that quintessential unknown object. Now, I've, I've, we, also, we also have an all-sky cam at our Arizona observatory. And at night we run it and it captures nightly images all night long. And we caught uh, a very strange object in the sky on the all-sky cam. And the roof of the door, the roof of the building was closed. I mean, we weren't even doing a stream that night, but the camera was dutifully recording the night as it went by, and it caught this object in the sky way up high, and it made a a, a, a perfect circle up in the sky path, and it appeared on two frames. Each frame was twenty four seconds long, and it appeared on one frame. It went halfway around the circle. The other half of the the other frame showed it going the other halfway around the circle. And we don't know what that was. You might say, oh, well, it was just a jet, you know, a military jet. Sure, it could be the afterburner of a military jet. But the problem is we'd only see that for half the circle. While it was heading away from us, we'd see the nozzle of the jet exhaust. But why did we see it when it was coming toward us, if that's what it was? And we did. Saw it very clearly coming toward us, uh, you know, on the other half of the, uh, the, other, the other frame. So... It was something very strange. It wasn't a satellite. They don't move that way. Uh, it wasn't a balloon. It wasn't a commercial jet, of course, because the turn radius was so tight that there was no way that a commercial jet could do that uh, without disintegrating. So uh, it was very odd. So this part of the desert is well known for its strange oddities. Yeah, who knows what you might actually capture, but as I said earlier, uh, you're not going to capture anything if you're not looking up, or in this case, with your uh, your telescopes uh, aimed uh, in the correct spot. Uh, so give us an idea how powerful uh, we're talking about here, these telescopes. Well, uh, the, the telescope that we're using now that's wide angle, uh, as I mentioned, it's a, uh, it's a, it has a field that's four full moons across and three full moons tall. And we can see things within that range that are billions of times fainter than your eye can see. Billions, not hundreds, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, billions with a B. And so the telescopes have an awful lot of power. And uh, the next one that's going out there is going to have an equal amount of power. Uh, And so we're going to be able to showcase these objects like never before. I've had people tell me, uh, from professional observatories that some of the photos we produce are absolutely as good as some of these professional observatories that are out there that have endowments of millions of dollars. <laughs> and, and they may be exaggerating a little bit. I think so. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little too humble for that. I, I would never ever say that, you know, uh, openly in any way and mean it, but it is pretty interesting that, um, you know, it's come a long way. And we've noticed the telescope is actually performing better than it was uh, a year ago. And there's no explanation. Maybe it's aliens. It very well could be, Mark. 
Uh, absolutely. All right, that'll do it for our first hour, but we've got much more to come with Mark D'Antonio here. Uh, his uh, outfit where you can uh, see his live streams and uh, find out more information, Sky Tour live stream observatories, we've got it linked at pairofnormalradio.com. More to come. I'm Jeremy Scott. If you think this hour was mind-blowing, just wait until you hear what's next. Into the Pair of Normal. We'll be right back. There's a parallel universe. A veil that separates us from all we perceive. Uh, literally, and uh, Mark Antonio is my guest tonight. Uh, Mark, talking about this supernova event, um, is there a danger when these stars are ripped apart or or blown up or, or however we refer to them? I mean, give us uh, an idea how dangerous that is. Do they the stars uh, serve a purpose? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, stars like our sun, as we know, are, are the seed of life. Uh, they provide and bathe potential life-bearing planets with radiation to keep them warm. Uh, to It's like Goldilocks, right? Uh, and the three bears, pour just too hot, too cold, just right. Well, the Earth is in the just right zone called, the, funny enough, the Goldilocks zone. Uh, in astronomy terms, it's the habitable zone around the star. And uh, Venus is just inside uh, the inhabited or the uninhabitable zone so just at the leading edge of the habitable zone and then mars is just inside the habitable zone at the far side so they kind of define the habitable zone for the star a little closer to the sun and we'd be a little more warm but technically could survive a little further out and we could survive uh, but it would be cold so uh, the habitable zone around a star is very important and all stars will have them but not all stars can support life and the reason is because the young hot stars, like these hot blue stars that we see uh, that are formed in these nebulae, in these stellar nurseries, as we call them, those stars are so hot and so young that many times their radiation is very, very hot and blue. And the, the amount of radiation given off is is dwarfed by how much comes off in a much higher frequency radiation called ultraviolet. And the ultraviolet you can't see. And as you know, ultraviolet radiation is dangerous for you here on Earth. Our sun puts it out. Um, you can uh, you know, sit out in the sun for a while and the ultraviolet radiation will tan you, right? But the ultraviolet radiation can also cause health issues to life. It can sterilize a life-bearing planet if if too much radiation is allowed to reach the surface. Look at the moon. Okay, look at Mars. The surface layers of Mars are sterile uh, because ultraviolet radiation reaches the uh, Martian surface unimpeded. On the Earth, we don't have that. 
because we have weather. We have an atmosphere that serves to protect us. Um, so stars are important uh, for life. You can't have life without them as far as we can see. Um, when the star blows up, you ask if it's dangerous. Well, not for us right now. We're looking at that star blowing up. That's 20 million plus light years away. So that's not going to hurt us. But uh, let's suppose as we orbit the galaxy, we've done it almost 20 times in our 4.6 billion years being around the, on the Earth. The sun and its retinue of planets go around the sun like that. Uh, however, we don't always have a fairly benign local set of stars around us. Right now we have Alpha Centauri, 4.3 light years away. We have Barnard's star about six light years away. Those stars are too small to go supernova. But what if Alpha Centauri, 4.3 light years away, was a massive star and could go supernova? Would that be dangerous for us? The answer is it could be. And the thing is, for a star that only shows up as a point of light in anyone's sky, when it goes supernova, it's going to get a lot brighter. And it's not the brightness that's a problem. It's the radiation that it's throwing off. It can throw off a lot of harmful radiation that could damage our atmosphere once it reached us, all right? Or it could damage life itself and cause changes. Now, it's interesting to note, there was a uh, burst of radiation that occurred billions, with a B, of light years away. And it did make measurable changes in our, in our Earth's uh, crust. Now, it, no, it wasn't going to hurt us, of course. However, it did make measurable changes. So the universe is always affecting us one way or another. It's just a matter of to what degree. And if a star is really close that can go boom, that could really harm us to a great degree. Luckily, there are no such stars, and there won't be for hundreds of millions of years moving forward. Can you give us an idea why this one is is brighter than most? Uh, only because this one, went, because of the mass of the original star, we call the original star the progenitor, okay? But the mass of the original star was probably such that the collapse of the core and the uh, ensuing explosion were actually uh, that much brighter and that much more enormous because of that original mass the star had. There are stars that, that go and explode that are even more bright than this in galaxies even further away, okay? And those, are, those explosions are called kilonovas. And then we have hypernovas, which are exceedingly rare. Uh, and again, we, there are some stars that are quite large. There are stars so big that if you put them where the sun was, they would eat almost all the planets in our solar system you know, out to <clears throat> past Jupiter. Okay, That's a huge uh, variation in stellar sizes. you know. Uh, and, and Jupiter is over five astronomical units away. That's 93 million miles per astronomical unit. Okay, and that means that a star would be a total of more than 10 astronomical units in diameter. Okay, imagine that there's that much material to make a star like that. That's just an incredible amount of mass concentrated in one place. And there's many locations in our galaxy, never mind the whole universe, where we see just that. So uh, it's pretty impressive, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I'm fascinated by this stuff. I mean, the ability to just walk out and in some cases with a telescope in the backyard, be able to see some of this stuff, although doing it with a supernova like this, you're really not going to see much with a backyard telescope, right? 
Uh, no, not necessarily, because the supernova is so bright that a backyard telescope would see the supernova. And what's it going to show up like? It's going to look kind of like a bluish dot in the faint galaxy image that you see. Uh, and the bluish dot is because of the fact that it's hot. In, in the universe, hotter means bluer. The hottest things in the universe are, are very, very blue. Hottest stars, I should say. Okay. Now, the coolest things in the universe are red. And I don't mean cool like, yeah, man, that's cool. I mean, but they are really cool. And those are the little red dwarf stars. Okay. The, those red dwarf stars can be a hundredth the size of the sun, literally slightly larger than Jupiter. And uh, they have planets. And there's one particular system like that. Uh, called Trappist-1, which has seven or so planets, three of which are in its habitable zone, the, where life could form. That's it's, it's a small star. And all of those planets are well within what would be the orbit of Mercury around our sun. So clearly, Mercury can uh, boil lead on its surface. So obviously, uh, it's hot there because of our sun. But if you have a star that's hundreds of times cooler, <laughs> right, and it's going to be a red star. At the opposite end, we have those hot blue stars. And so if you looked at it in your backyard telescope, you're going to see stars in the field. And then one of them might look a little blue to you. And that will be the supernova in the galaxy. Um, and it looks like another star in the field. You know, that's something to see it. Now, it'll last for several weeks like this, uh, maybe a month or so. And uh, the last uh, supernova that occurred in another galaxy... We tracked it, and we captured it when it was hot and blue, and we saw it when it was sort of white, and we caught it when it was sort of orangey, and then finally when it was red, and then finally when we couldn't see it anymore. And that took just over a month. Uh, but not visible with the, the naked eye? No, not that. But that's not, that hasn't always been the case. Uh, there is a famous nebula known as the Crab Nebula in the constellation Taurus. And we look at it now as a a supernova remnant, what happened when a star blew up okay, and what was left behind. However, when that blew up, it blew up in 1054 AD. Now, wait, we didn't have telescopes back then. How could we possibly know this? Because Chinese astronomers who just did sight lines using sighting stones and other things could see a new star in the sky. It was bright enough to see it with a naked eye. In fact, it was even bright enough to see during the day. Imagine that two suns in the sky. One's really, really bright you can't look at, and another one you can look right at, but it's sort of a faint star visible through the daylight. That's what that was. And uh, when we went to look at that location years later, obviously, decades, <laughs> centuries later, we saw that there was this remnant of a star there, uh, and in its core was this rapidly spinning stellar core remnant called a pulsar that was flashing us with hot radiation uh, on its poles or equator that as it would spin, it would flash us, uh, you know, 33 times per second. Really impressive stuff. So um, that's that's one of the few that we've seen during the day. If Betelgeuse blows up, and it's going to, the, the star that's in the upper left of Orion, the red star, that one will be visible during the day. That's a 700 light year distant star. That goes up. Man, that's going to be a light show for all the world. Uh, and speaking of these uh, objects, which you mentioned, uh, which would indicate that they have some heat to them, uh, kind of the bluish objects uh, in the sky. Yeah. Um, 
We seem to have seen a few of those in the first images that were released from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope last summer, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they they were showing. Um, unfortunately, the James Webb Space Telescope they they just like with Hubble, they produce sometimes false color images, and you see blue things, and you think, oh well, what Mark's saying means that these are hot. Well, unfortunately, the color blue being hot it applies to stars. It doesn't really apply to nebulae. When you see a blue nebulae, a new blue nebula of, of any kind, it usually is called a reflection nebula. It's dust particles that are uh, effectively reflecting the light of stars nearby. In fact, reflecting only the blue light from stars because the dust particles are the right size to basically uh, scatter that light perfectly. And uh, so those show up as blue as well. And those aren't hot. In fact, those are typically very cold. So, you know, it takes a little getting used to the fact that you know blue is not always hot, but it is when it comes to stars. Um, so... Uh, James Webb took some photos. They tried to put some in real time, real color. Um, and that was very interesting. Now, James Webb, though, is an infrared telescope. All right. So it sees things out past the red end of the spectrum. So the reddest light you can imagine seeing, just imagine there's a, there's a huge rest of a spectrum out there that you don't see. That's where radio waves are. That's where microwaves are. Okay. Uh, that's where... Uh, extremely long uh, frequency transmission is. So um, the infrared systems, those are heat. They're looking for heat. James Webb is looking for things that are speeding away from us so fast that their light has been shifted from the visible spectrum all the way into the infrared. And that is called Doppler shift. Something moving away from you very quickly, its light looks redder. But you can imagine if something is moving fast enough all of that light that looks red is going to get possibly shifted outside your ability to see it with a regular telescope more into the red. And so the James Webb is looking at that. And as such, it's discovered galaxies that are speeding away from us uh, that are literally billions of light years away. Certainly a lot of fascinating things in the sky, and we're talking about it tonight with Mark D'Antonio, director of Sky Tour Livestream Observatories. More to come on our program right after this. Into the Paranormal. Paranormal. You know, I will say, I think it actually does a disservice when images are doctored, and we know that those images from the James Webb, Stella, James Webb Space Telescope are not exactly the images. You know, they've got to make it look a little sexy. Um, were you impressed by those images, Mark, or not? Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, totally. And let me explain a little bit about that. Yes, it's true that if the James Webb telescope captures light that you can't see with your eye, how can you possibly see it? You have to shift it all basically into the visible spectrum. So you have to take light that's way far out in the infrared, shift it leftward into the spectrum, say, by a certain amount, and then do that to all the rest of the light that you see coming from the uh, James Webb so that it actually shows up visibly 
and is something that you can look at and enjoy. Um, and many times infrared images are shown as orange, like when we saw the black hole. Uh, radio telescopes do that too because radio light is way out into the red, off into the red end of the spectrum that you can't see. When we saw that gigantic black hole at the center of the galaxy, Measure 87, which is the uh, first time we ever saw a black hole uh, imaged, um, and it was we were actually imaging uh, the event horizon essentially and the accretion disk, that the disk of material all around it, and. Um, so there's a tendency to want to leave it in an orangey color to kind of indicate it's infrared. But it's also possible that you can get the actual image if you just properly convert the different colors to the proper visible light. For instance, the Hubble Space Telescope took an image called the Pillars of Creation years ago. That was called Measure 16, the Eagle Nebula. And... The Pillars of Creation image was oh, passed around the world. People absolutely loved it. And then the James Webb comes along. The James Webb is 100 times more capable. It has a mirror that's 21 feet in diameter, and the Hubble telescope is 8 feet in diameter. And that 21-foot mirror was able to show details in the Pillars of Creation that made a massive image look absolutely stunning with so much detail. And because it has different instruments, it can image only the dust in the nebula as well. And that's something that's really interesting. You know, the mid-infrared imager, the MIRI on James Webb, can show only the dust. They image galaxies this way, and you see all this dust in galaxies that you didn't know was there. And dust is very important. Why? It's, the, it's the, literally the, one of the fundamental building blocks of life. Because that dust is made of all kinds of elements in our periodic table, carbon, silicon, and all the others. All the other materials in that deep, cold dust cloud out in the universe could eventually become a planet and, and be made into a planet eventually. So very important stuff. Great instruments on this telescope. Absolutely. Again, tell us about uh, your website, your YouTube channel before we hit our break. Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find us uh, on YouTube at SkyTour Livestream. That's SkyTour, one word, live stream, one word, with Mark D'Antonio. Uh, you can find us at SkyTourLive.org or SkyTourLive.com. And uh, at SkyTourLive.com, you can go and see what we do. You can see our Patreon, join our Patreon. You can uh, send in a donation if you want to. You can go to our database online, our server, and check out all the things we've done and download uh, all the data, both raw and semi-processed, uh, and enjoy it. So keep, that's what we do. Keep your eyes to the sky, friend. We'll continue with Mark D'Antonio right after this. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal is all this fascinating stuff out there. It's definitely into the paranormal. This is Paranormal News. 
A new study concludes that there could be even more interstellar objects that have traveled through our solar system. Researchers believe there may be a steady population of ISOs in near-Earth orbit that have probably visited us but don't stay long. Their study is based on numerical simulations of incoming particles being interfered with in different ways by the Earth, Moon, Sun, and Jupiter. Oumuamua, the first known interstellar object to be identified, was discovered in 2017. Two years later, a rogue comet known as Borisov became the second. Both passed through too quickly, though, to be observed at any length. Studying these objects could help our understanding of other solar systems, how they form and evolve. George Henry, Paranormal News. Twilight and the Witching Hour, there's a place we call Into the Paranormal. See, a perfect sky-watching music right there, if there ever was any. I'm Jeremy Scott's Into the Paranormal across the USA tonight with Mark D'Antonio. SkyTourLive.com, you can get more information there. I also want to talk a little bit about UFOs uh, with Mark before we let him go because he's the chief photo and video analyst for the Mutual UFO Network. And, of course, along with everything we've talked about tonight, uh, UFOs are a big uh, part of what is seen in the skies. Um, Mark, tell us what uh, kinds of things you have captured uh what kind of anomalies you've captured on your your telescope in the time that you've been uh, looking with your eyes to the sky? When I have looked to the skies, that the last part of your sentence was the most important uh, thing you said. When you look to the skies, not a lot of people look in the sky. Most people are under light pollution, right? So they don't get a chance to see what's in the sky. So. Um, if you constantly are looking in the sky, you're bound to see something that you don't understand. Now, as an astronomer, I see all kinds of things in the sky that are great, they're odd, but explainable in many cases. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm good with what I do with MUFON, because I have a background in astronomy, earth science, oceanography, all the things that, that you need to understand, and most especially cameras and what kind of artifacts they produce. So besides the thousands and thousands of videos that I see, uh, I also have looked myself. And we did catch on our all-sky camera. We caught that thing I mentioned, uh, that odd, weird, curly. It was doing a circular path, exactly a circle, as a matter of fact, that we couldn't explain in the night sky. However, there's other things that you don't always have a camera trained on that you see that you just don't understand. One of them happened to me. And the East Coast Observatory, I was standing in the dome. And as I looked out, I saw this bright light appear in the sky. I'm looking at it going, what's that? And I kept watching it for about 30 seconds. Then I took out my phone. I looked up an astronomy app to see if there was something there in the sky that I just didn't know about. No, nothing there. And then after about two to four minutes, I would say, it just winked out and it was gone. And I was like, wait a minute. What is that? It wasn't an aircraft because aircraft landing lights, you can tell that what aircraft landing lights do. In fact, I teach people 
how to discern the difference between, say, satellites and aircraft and landing lights and, uh, you know, other things. And this was a very odd thing. It was, it was totally stationary in the sky. I set up a little, it had time, in fact, to do this. I set up a little ruler in the edge of the dome, and I held it up, and I kept my eye on it to see if it was moving at all. No movement. And I don't know what it was. Now, the sun had already set. So I thought, well, if it's a satellite, it should be moving through the sky. Uh, if it's something coming right at me, though, from space, then we would see something moving right at us. We would actually be able to tell that it's moving because it would it would probably go away pretty quick because it's probably a meteorite. Uh, because if it's coming right at me, it has to be moving at a very fast uh, you know, miles per hour to, to uh, cover that ground at that angle. And it wasn't. It was just there, and then it was not. So I thought, that I just see some strange flare star of some kind? I looked it up. I tried to figure it out. Uh, no reports of anything. So I don't know what that was. And that was very strange. Um, I've also had strange experiences myself. Um, you know, I, I, I told the story a number of times, but... Uh, the U.S. Navy sees strange things. Obviously, with the Nimitz incident, people have, have seen now that, that Navy pilots are now reporting things and ship uh, radar officers are reporting things. And I know a lot of those guys because uh, I actually do a lot of work for the Navy. Well, as it turns out, um, these objects that people see in the skies are not the only place where they see them. And many decades ago, this decades plural, by the way, I was on a U.S. submarine as a guest, a visitor, um, and suffice it to say that, that that's what I was doing there. And when I was on board, I got seasick because boats, the, these boats are on the surface for a long time before they submerge. When they submerge, it feels like everybody feels now. All of you in your homes listening, it feels like you feel now. There's no sensation of motion whatsoever, except when you reach some different temperature water, you feel a little vibration. Well, anyway, um, something ran, and when we were underwater, something came through the sonar extremely quickly, and then it was gone. And the kid on the sonar, who I was sitting next to, uh, trying to get my stomach back, to be fair, um, I'm not proud, I was sick as a dog, uh, called out to the con that there was a fast mover on his sonar. And he went, con sonar, con sonar, fast mover, fast mover, and he did it kind of like that. He'd never seen something like this, clearly. And the executive officer, though, comes around the corner, and he's sort of like, well, what do you got? And not even, boy, you're lucky. The guy was crazy. He couldn't believe he was, how calm he was. And uh, the kid told him the bearing and the range, which I didn't hear because it's noisy on the sub, believe it or not. But I heard the, the speed because the kid was incredulous, and he turned to the side in his seat, held his hands out when the XO, the executive officer, asked him how fast it was moving, and he said, Several hundred knots, sir. It sat there like a statue. Didn't know what to do. Sonar guys are supposed to know what everything is, and this kid could not classify this. And the executive officer let him off the hook. He said, okay, just log it and dog it. Sir, yes, sir. And he turned back to his um, console. Well, I went up to the XO right at that moment. My seasickness was gone. I wasn't sick anymore. I had adrenaline pumping now. And so I said, to the executive officer, oh, I, I know what these fast movers are. Is there anything I can help you with, sir? He looks at me and he goes, D'Antonio, right? I go, yes, sir. He goes, you're having a good trip. Yes, I am. Let's keep it that way. And he walks away. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah. then, then I ended up um, having to do a job for the Joint Chiefs some years later. <clears throat> and when I was in Washington, I talked to uh, some of the chiefs. I talked to one in particular. And I said to him, I go, what can you tell me about the fast mover program? And he could have said, you know, something like, well, how'd you hear about that? Or you're not supposed to talk about that. Or, you know, I don't know anything about it. Right. Uh, Do that. But he didn't. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I can't talk about that program, Mark. (laughs) That was all you can imagine. He said everything in in, in that response. By saying nothing, he said everything. You're absolutely right, Jeremy. That's right. And that now was decades ago. Decades. Now we go fast forward and the Nimitz incident comes out and people are reporting and, and you're hearing about uh, more and more, more and more um, uh, military folks are saying these things are happening. Well, guess what? The Navy hasn't stopped seeing them. I hear reports. I hear more reports on some boats. They get classified as jellyfish because they've got no other category for them. So, and now you say, well, why are we, why aren't we doing anything? Why aren't we actually, uh, you know, trying to stop them? The answer is because they pose no threat to us at the moment. And until they do, the orders that came down from the joint chiefs are observe and report because we can't do anything about it. Uh, And that's just what we're doing. Isn't that incredible? It's like uh, it's not a national security threat. It it is and it isn't. It it is a national security threat if they're threatening us, if they're fire a weapon at us. But they don't. They haven't. They won't. Um, and it's happening to every navy, not just ours. Chinese navy sees them. The Russian navy has seen them and reported them. Um, in fact, if you look up um, Russian USO or unknown submerged unknown submerged objects, you find that there's quite a lot of them out there. Okay. Um, so this is something that is ongoing and I've always said this, if there's going to be an alien species that makes it to us, and I think they can, my, one of my lectures at contact in the desert is going to be about the physics that could allow for them to be here, not millions of years or thousands of years of travel, but minutes or hours of travel. Uh, and it's something that a lot of physicists and aeronautical engineers I know, uh, can can vouch for and say is, is real. In fact, it's their idea, and I've just attached myself to it because I think it's the right answer. Um, but um, if, unless these things become a threat, we're not going to go after them. And because so many navies have reported them, it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. And no one thinks that it's a Russian sub with a special weapon. No one thinks that the Chinese have built a new hypersonic UFO that goes underwater, you know, um, and that's because that can't work with any known physics we have as humans on this planet. Okay, so then let me hone in on this. If we take China and Russia out of the equation, uh, that leaves ours, and by ours I mean, you know, the U.S. or maybe some clandestine group or ETs, or is there another possibility? Well, obviously we look to black projects. I mean, in in my past, I've worked on a few of those. Um, again, the reason I was on the boat it was well back decades ago, I had the appropriate credentials to do that. Um, and I knew of some really interesting projects that were reported as UFOs that I knew were not. And I was also 
working with MUFON at the time, Mutual UFO Network. So I had to call the program office to say, hey, people are reporting this, this object you've made as a UFO. And they said, good, let them. That'll help us. I go, no, it won't. Because if they think it's a UFO, they're going to bring all their friends and start photographing this object, probably capturing it in ways you don't want them to know. And he went, oh. <laughs> and finally, they released a statement saying it's one of ours. We're testing a new thing. And everybody went home dejected. Okay. Well, uh, so it could be a black project, yes. Uh, it could be uh, possibly another Navy. Uh, but the fact that it's moving so fast underwater defies all the physics that all of us have, all of the races of people on this planet have. So that's something that cries out for a new advanced physics. Now, the advanced physics we require in this case requires a thing like a fusion reactor to generate particles to to make this potential travel a possibility. It requires the harnessing of uh, particles in gravity that we have yet to locate. Those are called gravitons. Um, the, the only technology that is possible is something that's about 100 years away, maybe 200 years away from our current capability. And even then, it's only going to be rudimentary. And maybe at some point in the future, a 1,000 years from now, we will have ships that routinely travel to Pluto in 12 minutes. I know that sounds like science fiction in Star Trek, and it isn't even warp drive. That's not good enough. How about that? Uh, this is sort of an interdimensional thing, you know, leaving our four dimensions of X, Y, and Z moving through time and traveling into a fifth dimension that's highly warped where all distances are closer to you once you're in that dimension. And then if you punch out of our dimensions and go into that one and punch back in, well, now you can find yourself light years away, you know? And so that's, uh, that's what I'll be lecturing on at contact. And I'll actually be doing it a month later in Roswell uh, at there as well. So did we and reverse in, engineer some of this stuff? Ooh, wouldn't that be interesting to find out? I don't know. I don't know. Well, then how'd we get a I hold know, of it? I think that, well, first of all, don't, don't discount the ingenuity of humans, but um, it's possible things were reverse engineered. Uh, there's books out there. Frank Corso, you know, he said the day in his book, the day after Roswell, he claimed we had stuff and he's been widely debunked in a lot of his um, uh, claims, but you know what? I'm open-minded to know that we don't work in a vacuum. There is, there are things that are happening here that cause us to think and say, Hmm, let's try and figure out how that thing worked. <clears throat> and that's very, very possible. All right, uh, we're going to take our final break with Mark D'Antonio, and uh, then we're going to come back, and I've got a few more questions for him. Uh, and he's going to be at Contact in the Desert in the weekend after next. Uh, you can get more information uh, by just doing a search about that. And he's got a, actually a pretty, pretty cool thing that he's going to be doing. We'll ask him about that when we come back. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Eyes to the sky tonight. We'll continue you right after this into the paranormal
Interested, uh, Mark, if through your telescopes you've uh, picked up any uh, of these craft on on camera besides what you've shared with us uh, so far uh, that have gone into an official, I guess, investigative file at MUFON? Uh, nothing, nothing that we've seen. Okay, I mean, again, I see thousands of videos from all over the world, and I know that there are many things that are interesting. But you know, a lot of the times, you're you're getting people who capture ordinary objects, but in extraordinary ways, and so they really do look odd. And I'm I'm endlessly uh, intrigued by all the stuff they submit. Uh, and I give everything a fair shake. Uh, say this, though. Once you've been in this for a while, and I've been their chief photo and video analyst since 2008. How about that? Okay. Holy cow, that's a long time. Um, wow. I got to say. Uh, but uh, in all that time, um, I found that there have been relatively few objects captured by an ordinary cell phone that were exceptionally intriguing. Now, that doesn't make me a debunker. It means I'm trying to explain them in terms we might understand. And I always have an open mind to know that I could be wrong, and I'm okay with that. Now, I'll say this. The things that are captured in the sky on a cell phone are always looking in the visible spectrum. But if this other physics is in play that we kind of alluded to before the break, then they might not be visible. They might be somewhat transparent. They might vanish from sight. And you'll say, that's just science fiction. Actually, it's not. It's just physics. You know, if you're, if you're actually leaving the four dimensions we're in and you go into this fifth dimension we talked about, your ship might look like it's shimmering, just like it's been reported. Your ship might look like it's changing colors, just like has been reported in so many cases. Your ship might also look like it's vanished from sight and winked out, just as has been reported in many cases. Uh, it might appear to disappear from one spot and appear in another, just as has been reported in many cases. So all of those things you can't deny are potential evidence of this extended physics in play. Now, as an astronomer, something changing color I could call, well, that's just atmospheric scintillation. It depends on the conditions. Were you looking at a star near the horizon, an object near the horizon? Well, it could have been that. Something winking out at one spot and appearing in another, that could have been the autokinetic effect caused by your eye's inability to focus on a blank sky on one spot. Your eye's always dancing around, and it never can seem to see where it just saw that last spot. And you'll think, your brain will think you're seeing it in a new spot. Okay, The uh, shimmering is also something that could be explained, and, and the fading out, something at the edge of visibility. So the question is, how do we set up the difference or examine the difference between those ordinary occurrences with an extraordinary occurrence of this. So that's the target for what we're trying to do. You know, Avi Loeb's Galileo project. I know Avi, you know, he's a great guy and I've talked to his Galileo team. Avi is trying to set up, for instance, a way to detect um, interlopers in our local space. And as a Harvard astrophysicist, you might think that that's something he would never do. Um, and he did come under a lot of fire for that. But I've always praised him for the open mind. You know, he knows, as I do, that we're probably not alone in the universe. 
What none of us know is whether they've actually made it here. But the evidence, what I've seen, what he's seeing, and what other people have reported seems to indicate that they have made it here. Mark, what are you doing at Contact in the Desert out uh, in, in well, the desert of Arizona, actually? Well, actually, Contact's being held in Indian Wells, which is near Palm Springs, California. Uh, I'll be going into Arizona and driving there with other people from Phoenix. Um, and what I'll be doing there is I'll be doing a lecture on this very type of thing I'm talking about. Um, and that's a uh, event that'll be held indoors. And it's going to talk about um, the physics and in lay terms, and it has to do with string theory. We're going to talk about string theory in layman's terms, believe it or not, because there's a way to do it. And then I'll be doing outdoors. I'm going to be doing a sky tour live stream where people are going to be able to join us uh, from around the world. And it'll be a live studio audience for the first time. It'll be the first time we ever did that. Awesome. I, you never know what you're going to see, but you have to look up, right, Mark? You got it. We always say, keep looking up. And if you're not careful, you might actually learn something. <laughs> but then you get a strained neck. You yeah, know, you do, the, unless you lay a blanket down, the, Jeremy. The more just, you look. Yeah, you can relax. Yeah. I, I get. Out there, it's beautiful in Arizona. I'm sure it's already getting warm out there. Mark, thanks for the program. Hey, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Good night, friends. <laughs>